Yes, please turn with me in God's holy word to Psalm 122. As you turn there, I want to thank Dave and the elders for their invite. It's a wonderful privilege to minister God's word to you. Psalm 122. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones for the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Amen. O Lord our God, we bless you for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we bless you, O God, for the head of the church, our Savior. And we pray now that as we think about the church, that our hearts might resonate with that of your servant David and with all of Israel as they ascended to the house of the Lord. And so grant us your grace, fill our mouths with good things, we pray, even as we seek the good of Zion. In Christ's name, amen. Psalm 120 through 134 are all psalms which are entitled Psalms of Ascents. And we don't know exactly the occasion for this collection of psalms. Possibly it was for the dedication of Solomon's temple and used by pilgrims ever since as they traveled to the city for their annual three feasts. In Psalm 120, which starts this selection, we have the pilgrims quite a distance from Jerusalem. As the psalmist says, I sojourn in Meshech, and I dwell among the tents of Kedar. They were longing for Jerusalem. And then in Psalm 121, as we see the direction and the movement of these psalms, The psalmist is within sight of Jerusalem, seeing the hills and traveling the hills that surround Jerusalem. And now in Psalm 122, the psalmist speaks of having arrived in Jerusalem. Our feet are standing, he says, within your gates, O Jerusalem. Now, we might well ask, what does... The psalmist and Psalm 122, what does that have to do with the 21st century, with Christians nowadays? And the answer is that the psalm expresses in wonderful ways the pure joy and delight of corporate worship. There's nothing quite like corporate worship in all the world. This is the apex of life in a fallen world, as we'll see. And our, my prayer as we 
as we exposit this psalm together is that your heart will resonate with these truths. That you would love the church more and more and delight in her corporate worship. This evening we'll consider the three stanzas of this psalm as considered by a pilgrim. First, how he rejoices in Jerusalem, one and two. Second, verses three through five, how he rejoices over Jerusalem. And then the remaining verses, his devotion to Jerusalem. First, he rejoices in Jerusalem. He rejoices over Jerusalem. And then his devotion to Jerusalem. First, then, rejoices in Jerusalem. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Notice first the joy of anticipation. In fact, the first word in the Hebrew is the verb for rejoicing, and that sets the tone for the entire hymn. The pilgrim overflows with joy, with gladness in his soul. Now, why is it? Why is he so glad, as he says here? Why so much joy? Well, it's very apparent from the language of the psalm. The psalmist is glad, his heart has been made glad, because he loves to worship God, to be in the presence of God. And what he has received as he ascends into Jerusalem is a call to worship, just like we receive each worship service. And he loves worship because it's his thankful response for God's grace in his life. He, in fact, he can't wait to go to worship. But he doesn't just love to worship God in general. No, there's something else here that he speaks of. He loves worshiping the triune God with God's people. He loves to gather with God's people to worship. Those like him who are gripped by God's grace and his love. He loves gathering with them to worship his God. Let us, he says, go up to the house of the Lord. It's a call that's public. It's a call for God's people to gather themselves together. And he loves that. And so no wonder he's so glad. Together they're going to the house of the Lord. And this is key to understanding the significance of Jerusalem. And it's a key to understanding the entire psalm. You'll notice that the phrase, the house of the Lord, begins the psalm in verse 1, and it concludes the psalm in verse 9. In other words, the house of the Lord is the reason why the psalmist has such great affection for Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the beloved city. It's the city of David. But it's the place where the tabernacle was. It's the place where sacrifices were offered. It's the place where God, Abram's God, Isaac's God, Jacob's God, promised to meet his people. It's the place where God put his name above all other cities in Jerusalem. The place where God dwelt between the outstretched cherubim. And that's what made Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city of God. 
It was the place where God's people met in the presence of their God, Yahweh. And this is what the psalmist expresses, for instance, in Psalm 42, where he says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And it was this anticipation then that filled the pilgrim and all those who joined with the pilgrim on their journey to Jerusalem. Now, children, you understand this sense of anticipation. You understand it. Sometimes you have experienced it when you're going on vacation and your parents tell you that you'll be going to such and such a place. And you can't wait to go on vacation or to see your friends. You're overflowing with excitement. And sometimes they wisely don't tell you until very close to that time because you can't sleep, you can't do your schoolwork, you can't do much of anything, but you're filled with excitement and anticipation. And that's what's going on here. As the psalmist, as the pilgrim, as they journey to Jerusalem, they cannot wait to be in the presence of God, to enjoy the blessedness with the people of God. They couldn't wait because they would meet and be in the presence of the Lord in the house of the Lord. But there wasn't only the joy of uh, anticipation, there was the joy of participation. Verse 2, they finally arrived. Our feet, he says, are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. You sense the excitement, the, the double announcement of Jerusalem. The thing that brought the pilgrims the greatest joy was the reason they had come. And that was to participate in the worship at Jerusalem. Finally, they had arrived at the house of the Lord. They had arrived at the temple in the presence of God. Now, it wasn't the building, it wasn't the temple, per se, that filled them with joy. What really filled them with joy was the fact that God was there and that he had promised to be there with his presence. You see, to arrive at the house of the Lord was to arrive at the destiny for which they were created. To worship in the presence of God. And the psalmist understood that and he loved to do that. He couldn't wait for the annual feast, the three feasts. And so we have this cheerful readiness he and along with his family and friends as they come together from their villages and cities throughout Israel, all on their way to Jerusalem. And now they are standing if in the gates of Jerusalem. And my friends, this is truly a mark of true gospel godliness. Both the the sense of anticipation and then participation. As members of the New Covenant, 
we now live our lives from the first day of the week and we live out of God's grace the rest of the week, but we can't wait for the next Lord's Day. We anticipate it. And then, better than that, we participate in his worship just as we are doing now in the very presence of Almighty God, the triumph God of which we sung this evening. And this is what the psalmist enjoyed. Those who know God's grace love to gather with God's people and give him praise. There's no such thing in scripture of the lone ranger worshiper. No, heaven's worship is corporate worship. And that's what we do now as we gather together as congregations around the world, worshiping the Lord our God as the people of the living God. But we have greater privileges than they. In the Old Covenant, we might say that they could only worship God and enter so far, but no further. They were to enter through the gates and into the courts, but then they had to stop. But thank God that we enter right into the very presence of our God, a holy God, the veil having been ripped asunder so that by Christ's death and resurrection, we might now enjoy heaven's worship. And that's why, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, that no longer are we worshiping below. No, by the Spirit of God, we have been brought up, even this evening, into the very presence of our God, in the holy sanctuary, the sanctuary not made with hands, the writer of Hebrews tells us. We have access into the holy place through the blood of Christ Jesus, the city of the living God. And so do you realize your privilege each Lord's Day? There's no greater privilege, there's no greater joy or gladness than this, to be in the house of the Lord, in the very presence of the God of heaven the living God. The greatest joy for the Christian is to be in the presence of God, bar none. And this is what heaven will be like, you see. If worshiping God is your greatest joy here, it'll be your greatest joy there. If worshiping God is not your greatest joy here, then you need to cry out that God by his spirit would give you that joy because you're seriously missing out. Because that's what heaven's going to be like. We'll be worshiping our God in the presence of Christ Jesus by the power of his spirit day and night. We do that by faith now, but one day by sight. And so there's rejoicing in Jerusalem because God is there. But secondly, there's also rejoicing over Jerusalem as the psalmist speaks of Jerusalem, verses 3 through 5. One of the, we're from the north, we're from Canada, but one of the southern cities we enjoyed when arriving in the south many years ago was Savannah. 
we visited that city a number of times. And one of those times we took a horse and buggy tour of the downtown, very informative, and they spoke of the significance of all the squares, explained the architecture and the churches and the famous people that inhabited that city over the years. Well, we have something like that in these verses. As the pilgrims tour the city of Jerusalem, there are a number of things that come into focus for them. First, the psalmist says, the city is bound firmly together. It's closely compacted together. All the houses built together within the walls and the citadels that surrounded it. There's unity the psalmist is speaking of in the construction of the city. It's well planned. Perhaps like Savannah by James Augerthorpe and its 22 park-like squares. Thoughtful, planned. But secondly, the pilgrim notices that the tribes of the Lord are populating the city as they look around. Hundreds, thousands, perhaps even a half a million people would congregate in Jerusalem for these annual feasts. Now, this was commanded by God, so they might give thanks to God, a remembrance of the wondrous things that he had done for Israel, for his redemption and for his continued provisions for them. And the third dimension of the city's splendor is that Jerusalem is a place of justice. Well, we now have even more burden. We understand this text even more in our culture where there is no justice any longer. And that makes life very difficult and ugly. But the psalmist makes mention of the house of God, verse 1-9, and in the middle there's another house. It's the house of David. It's the house where justice is administered. There's a throne there. And the link... I think, with the city's significance for the pilgrim would be the excitement of visiting a place where important decisions are made. And for Israel, then, Jerusalem. It'd be something like going to D.C. or marveling at the Supreme Court and says, yes, God is a God of justice, of righteousness. But it's not just physical realities, you see, that the psalmist is making note of. He's merely using these physical realities to communicate the more impressive spiritual realities of the city of Jerusalem. The city who's bound firmly together describes the unity of the people of God, something he describes in more detail in Psalm 133. And interestingly, the verb here in, in verse 3, bound firmly together, is used in Exodus 26, verse 11, to speak of the coupling of the curtains for the tabernacle of God so that they might be one seamless whole. And that's who we are. That's what the psalmist is saying. That's what he's seeing. That's who we are as the family of God as we're worshiping the Lord together. There is a holy unity we have one purpose. We serve one God, one faith. And it's a corporate nature. It's an assembly, the one body of Christ, the bride. We are the choir of God. 
And yet, you notice there's diversity within the church of God. He speaks in verse 4 of the tribes going up to Jerusalem. All 12 tribes with all the diversity of the different tribes. We have the coastal dwellers of Zebulon. We have the highlanders of Dan. We have the farmers of Ephraim. We have the desert packers of, of, of Reuben. And they're all there. And they're not all the same, you see. They all have distinctive qualities and attributes. But that's the glory of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the thrilling thing about the church. It's that we're not all the same. And we don't all speak the same. God has made us different. He brings us from different parts of the world, but we come together in corporate worship to worship the same God. And this is the difference, by the way, between a church of the Lord Jesus Christ and a cult. It's cults that want sameness. But the church of the Lord is diverse. We have unity and diversity and diversity and unity. And herein the church mimics then our triune God. And you know, this is what John got a glimpse of. This is what thrilled John, you remember, in that vision, in the revelation as he speaks of the worship of heaven in Revelation 4. When, he was, when the door was open and Christ led him by the hand into the worship of heaven, he saw worshipers from every tribe, nation, people, and language. All of them with their diversity and holy unity. But there's a third thing that reminds the pilgrim of the heavenly reality. And that is David's throne of justice was really an administration of the divine king's gracious rule. You remember perhaps back in Deuteronomy 4 when Moses gave, when God gave Moses the law and Moses told the people of Israel about the law. He reminded Israel of how great a privilege it was to be a people with such laws so that the nations would say, wow, what a people, what a God who gives their, his people such rules and statues. But you see, God was the one the people were ultimately looking for, for justice. Yes, it was administered through God's king throughout the reigns, but it was God. It was he who ultimately brought about justice, but he dispensed that through his earthly human kings. But as the citizens, or as the pilgrims go up to Jerusalem, they see the house of David. They understand that one day, as the prophets have said, righteousness will dwell. There will be perfect righteousness and holiness because God will rule and God will reign. And one day he will make all wrongs right. And that was the psalmist's hope. He'll bring about perfect justice. And when you read the Psalms, then you, you get this refrain, this current refrain, that God is the God who one day will bring justice in all the earth. He will judge. Psalm 98, verse 9, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So the unity 
of God's people, the glorious diversity of God's people, dwelling in the presence of Almighty God, Yahweh their God, and under his gracious rule. And this reminds us again that to be in to be part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be under Christ's gracious rule. To be outside the church is to be under the tyranny of the wicked one. And he is a harsh taskmaster. He is wicked. He is cruel. But our Lord Jesus, he is the one under whom we have a gracious rule. So the pilgrim rejoices in Jerusalem. He rejoices over Jerusalem. And lastly, his devotion to Jerusalem, verses 6 through 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The psalmist says he has entered into the glorious worship of God. He prays for the peace of Jerusalem. Peace for the church. Three times he uses the word shalom. Total well-being for the church. A wholesomeness. A, a security for the people of God. Like the citadel and the walls that surrounded Jerusalem. And the psalmist means for us to, means for us to understand that peace is absolutely crucial for the church. Absolutely crucial for the church. That he ties it together with a pun. It's hard to see in the English. But the word shalom comes from the same word as the ending of the name of the city that they're in. Jerusalem. And he's saying to all the fellow worshipers, all those who have come, thousands upon thousands. He says, live up to your name. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now this is most crucial for the church. That we might at all costs, all costs, even to ourselves, keep the peace of Jerusalem. There is no more destructive thing to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ than those who would be unruly, those who are not for peace, those who hate peace. Just look back at chapter 1, or Psalm 120, verse 6. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. When I speak, they are for war. The psalmist love, longs, rather, for God's favor. He wants God's peace to be visited upon the church. But also, you notice, then, the care for the church. Notice three times the psalmist uses the word within, within your walls, peace, security within your towers, peace within you. In other words, we need to care for the assembly of the faithful. The Christian life, you see, is opposed to self-centeredness. A worship 
of God is corporate, and so is our care for one another. We care for the people of God. In fact, he puts it explicitly in verse 8. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. But then, thirdly, there's a loyalty to the church. Verse 9, for the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your good, or I will seek the best for you. And you see how then the psalmist, the pilgrim, as he, as he enters into Jerusalem and into the worship of God, he ends with this personal resolution. I will seek your good. In other words, nothing should demand my devotion or my loyalty as much as Jerusalem's prosperity. If my heart is filled with love to God, to worship God, then I'll give my life to the church to serve the church because I realize that the church is my mother. She's the nurturer of God's elect. She's the one who is the foundation of God's kingdom. Isn't it true that often we spend so much time on our own kingdoms? So much time and energy and resources building our own little empires, a little effort or sacrifice for the well-being of the church. But you know, as we heard tonight, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only institution in all the world and in all history that will remain. She's been purchased with the blood of Christ Jesus and the writer of Hebrews emphasizes this. As he quotes from the Old Testament, yet once more I'll shake the heavens and the earth so that everything that's shaken will fall away and be destroyed. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will continue for all eternity. Timothy Dwight said it so well in that hymn that we know and love. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before me stand, dear as the apple of your eye, engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall. For her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils um, will be given till toils and cares shall end. Oh, worshiper, is there anything more wonderful in all the world than to pray for the prosperity, for the peace of the house of God? Is there any prayer more excellent, more rewarding, more exalting than you can pray? that God would be honored and glorified and set apart within his body and within his church and within his people a place for sinners like us. And so pray, the psalmist is saying, pray for the peace and prosperity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus to prosper in this place. Pray for your pastor, Dave. Pray that God would give him unction every worship service. Pray that as he studies through the week, 
that God would give him the words to speak, that he would have the heart and mind of the Lord as he comes into the pulpit each week. Pray for Steve and Jeff and Warren as they lead and as the session together, as they deal with the things of the church. They deserve your prayers. These are important prayers. You remember how the Apostle Paul, he urges the people of God to pray along with him so that God's will would be done, the door would be opened. It's a prayer that's so necessary. It's so often forgotten, but why? Because it's here then that we are served by Christ himself. And it's for the blessing of your souls and for that of your children and your posterity. It is here that God would feast your souls on Christ. And so there's no greater blessing, no greater prosperity that you can have than you pray for your pastor and your elders to lead. And I know that all of us would say, oh, how we would love to do this more perfectly. God knows our love for his worship and for the gathering of his saints, but how we wish our hearts were always in such a frame as the psalmist to love the worship of God. But there was one pilgrim who did seek the good of Jerusalem with the whole of his life. There was something about this pilgrim that distinguished him from all the other thousands and thousands of pilgrims that annually went to Jerusalem. All the other pilgrims, as they were streaming in Jerusalem, they had a lamb in tow to sacrifice to the Lord as a substitute. This lamb would be sacrificed on the altar. Blood would be running down the streets of Jerusalem. And this the way they would receive the blessing, the blessed promise of God, that God would be at peace with them. But of course, as every Old Testament worshiper understood, those who came to Jerusalem in faith, they understood that these lambs could never atone for sin. They could never take away their sin, but they understood, according to God's promise, that the sacrifice pointed to the one God had provided to take away their sin. The one about whom Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 53. The one who would be led to the slaughter, wounded for our transgressions, one who would be bruised for our iniquity, the one upon whom was the chastisement that brought us peace. But what distinguished this one pilgrim from every other pilgrim was that he was the lamb for the sacrifice. The lamb that would take away the sin of the world. But there was a second thing that distinguished this pilgrim from every other worshiper. He did not come into Jerusalem with gladness, but with sadness, with tears. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a brood, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Yes, on that day when the masses were streaming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast of the Lamb, that pilgrim was distinguished from all other pilgrims. The Lamb of God who was sacrificed as a substitute bearing our sins upon the tree. Symbolized by these elements at the table he wants, he instituted for our remembrance. And it's through that sacrifice, dear brothers and sisters, that we have peace with God, or better, God made peace with us through Christ Jesus. In fact, we can only pray, can't we, for the peace of Jerusalem, for the prosperity of Jerusalem, when we know his peace, his reconciling grace to sinners. And that's why, ultimately, we with the psalmist can say, it's because of his sacrifice, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of majesty. It's because of him that we rejoice and we are glad to say to each other and with each other, let us go to the house of the Lord. And we get to do this every week until that one day, which this is a foretaste of, there will be a worship that will be out of this world. The worship of the Lamb of God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we're so grateful to you that you have given us purpose in this life. Lord, you have given us a reason to live. And you remind us of that purpose week after week. We thank you, O oh God, that you have put in our hearts that longing for your worship. You have created us to worship. And we're thankful, Lord, that though the world worships, every creature worships, you've enabled us by your grace to worship the true and living God. We thank you, Lord, with all our hearts that you've put it in our hearts to worship you. Oh God, we thank you that you, from found the before the foundation of the world, have set your affections upon us. Then Christ, in time, Christ Jesus was sent to die for sinners like us so that we might now enjoy holy worship, the gathering of the people of God here in the power of the Spirit with all the church throughout the world and in heaven itself to worship you. Oh God, we thank you for this awesome reality. And we thank you that you remind us of this great privilege each Lord's Day as you call us into worship. No greater words in all our vocabulary than to worship you. And we pray, Father, that now as we come to this table, a table which your son has instituted for our remembrance of that great sacrifice which he has made so that there might be peace between you and us and we and you. 
We ask, Lord, that you would feed us then upon Christ. That you would give us faith to believe that the elements point to our Lord Jesus, the one who was dead and is now alive forevermore, the great host of the feast. And so set our eyes upon him and give us grace week after week to delight in your worship until that day in which we shall worship at your feet in glory.